Therapy Chat Podcast, Episode 97. This is the Therapy Chat Podcast. The information shared in this podcast is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health professional. And now, here's Laura Reagan, LCSWC, with today's episode. Welcome back to Therapy Chat. This episode is airing on August 3rd, 2017, and August is a month of celebration for Therapy Chat. And there's a heck of a lot to celebrate. August 16th is Therapy Chat's official second birthday, originally birthed as the Baltimore Annapolis Psychotherapy Podcast and transitioned into therapy chat the following April of 2016. Therapy chat will be two years old. And this past month, July 2017, we had our first over 50,000 download month, which was very exciting. It's so cool to see the audience grow for therapy chat. And I hear such amazing feedback from those of you who listen. It's, it's unbelievable, really. Podcasting is a lot of work. And as much as I love it, I do need to take time to rest. So in August, I'm going to play the most popular episodes of therapy chat starting from the number four most popular, then the third most, then the second most, and finally the most popular of all. And between the second most popular and the first most popular, we will have something else to celebrate, which is the 100th episode of Therapy Chat. So that's a pretty big milestone in a podcast life cycle and something that's very exciting to me to be celebrating the second birthday and the 100th episode at the same time. It's really cool. So I'm hoping that you will be a part of the 100th episode because it's an audience participation episode. That is unless nobody in the audience wants to participate, which could happen and we may have to come up with a plan B. But if you listen to Therapy Chat and you enjoy what I'm doing here, I would love for you to call in using SpeakPipe. Go to my website, therapychatpodcast.com and look for the green button to record a message and tell me who you are, where you are, and which episode is your favorite. If you don't feel like giving your name, don't worry. I'm not trying to get your name. You don't have to put yourself out there like that, but you could say, I'm a nurse in Minnesota and I love therapy chat episode about self-care and helping professionals. For example, give the information you want to give, but what I really want to know is I want to hear your voice. I'd love to know where you live, even roughly, and which episode is your favorite. So if you do this, I can't promise because I don't know how big the response will be, but I'm planning to include as many of you as possible in that 100th episode, which will air, I think, August 24th. So got a little bit of time. Go to therapychatpodcast.com. Look for the green button that says send a message and record a short message to me letting me know who you are, where you are, and which episode is your favorite and why. I would love hearing from you. I absolutely love hearing your voices. It's so cool. So the episode that you're going to hear now, episode 97, is an interview with a woman who is a psychotherapist in New York City. Hillary Jacobs Hendel is a very interesting person who talks about core emotions and the change triangle. She talks about how she uses AEDP in her work, and she talks about a very cool opportunity she had to consult on one of my favorite TV shows, Mad Men, in which 
the portrayal of the main character, Don Draper's childhood abuse and how it showed up in his life and interfered with his relationships was extremely accurate based on my experience with people who have been through childhood trauma. Not that everyone who's been through childhood trauma behaves like Don Draper does, but the way the show depicts his lack of awareness about what it is that's driving his behavior and how he's kind of self-destructive can be common to many people who've experienced childhood trauma and don't realize that that's why they feel the way they do. That's what made me get interested in talking to Hillary to begin with, because I wanted to hear how she got involved with Mad Men. And we talk about that a little bit too. So sit back and enjoy my interview with Hillary Jacobs Hendel. And thank you so much for all of your support during this month of celebration. Therapist, we've all had that moment. You wake up in the middle of the night. Oh my gosh, did I do my notes? Well, you don't have to worry about that anymore when you use therapy notes. Therapy notes makes it easy to write your notes, get them done quickly, but thoroughly. My group practice has used therapy notes for six years and everyone always finds it easy to use. But the best thing is if you do need help, you can call their customer service number and a person answers the phone. And anytime I've ever had to use it, which is maybe three times in the past six years, my issue has been resolved easily with a cheerful demeanor in 15 minutes or less. So I highly recommend therapy notes. And don't forget, go to therapynotes.com and use promo code chat to get two free months. Welcome back to Therapy Chat. Today is a very special episode because I have an interview with someone who actually agreed to be interviewed all the way back last summer. And we did the interview, then we had problems with the technology, and she graciously agreed to come back. Hillary Jacobs Hendel is an LCSW in New York City who has a very interesting practice. The reason I originally came into contact with Hillary was because she had consulted on the show Mad Men. And if you've listened to this podcast, you know that I'm a big fan of that show. And you can look back at previous episodes where I dissected what was going on with the main character of Mad Men, Don Draper, and related it to childhood trauma and secrecy and shame. So you can go back and check that out in in episodes 53 on secrecy, shame, and the shadow, and episode 54, which is called What's Up with Don Draper. I wanted to interview Hillary about her work consulting on Mad Men, but once we started talking, that was one of the things I was interested in learning about, but we talked much more in depth about core emotions and healing emotional pain using what she calls the change triangle. She has a book coming out on that subject, which is related to the psychotherapy practice called AEDP. And she's going to talk about that in this episode. So you'll hear all about it. So let's get started with my interview with Hillary Jacobs Hendel. Hillary, thank you so much for coming back to Therapy Chat today. Thank you, Laura. I'm so thrilled to be here. Thanks. So I say coming back because we had a um, we had an interview back in, I believe it was May, and my crazy technology failed on me. So you were gracious enough to agree to do it again, and I really appreciate that. Oh, it's my pleasure. <laughs> so I would love if you could just tell our listeners a little bit more about yourself and your work. Sure. How far back should I go? (laughs) I guess maybe the most interesting thing to know is I am a a born and bred, born and raised in New York City. And um, I was raised by very psychologically aware parents. And uh, it made sense that I would become a psychotherapist. 
And I first began my career as a psychoanalyst because that was really the standard of care, especially in New York City, and that that was the sort of correct way of working. And then it was just through just, just great luck that I ended up at an emotion conference over 12 years ago uh, on the recommendation of a friend of mine that said she had heard this woman, Diana Fosha, speak and she was just fascinating and had great information. So I went to this emotion conference where there were about three or four academic researchers and clinical practitioners. And what I learned changed the trajectory of my career. And I ultimately changed the way that I worked from a psychoanalytic stance and way of thinking, even though I still use that education in my work, but basically I now practice in this method called AEDP. One stands for Accelerated Experiential Dynamic Psychotherapy, and it is just a wonderful way to work, and it is a wonderful way to be treated. And I could go on and on about the differences between the psychoanalytic uh, way of working and this accelerated experiential way, but I, I don't want to bore your listeners, but the main, maybe the main difference as a consumer is that AEDP is a healing-oriented methodology that it's it's not where you just kind of freely talk and talk and gain insight which is a wonderful thing but it's very targeted in terms of helping somebody feel better in 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 much more directive ways yeah so i'm fascinated by the way experiential methods of psychotherapy can really be different from what people typically think of as talk therapy you know the old i mean the psychoanalytic stereotype is like you know dr freud sitting behind the sofa with the patient lying on the sofa and talking and not being able to see the therapist and you know i know that's a stereotype and not the way that people actually practice psychoanalytic. Well, I think it's not. Um. (laughs) Some people do. There are really traditional, um, still people practicing psychoanalysis in the traditional classical way. Okay. So, and, and no judgment, but it is a different way from experiential methods. And can you talk about that? What you mean when you say it's a healing method and experiential Yes, absolutely. And I guess I really just want to say, because I I think there's not one size fits all, so I really don't want to discredit psychoanalysis Mm -hmm. at at all. There are people, particularly those who were intruded upon as children, that there's, in psychoanalysis, there's huge amounts of free space for someone just to be. And that really has its place. It's it's not that you don't have that in ADP, but it's really a lot of, um, there's the, the therapist is really not imposing anything except an interpretation now and then. And the patient or client, you know, just comes in and says what's on their mind. What I guess the key, there's so many differences, and I've been, I've been thinking about this for years, sort of how to talk about this, but um, one key difference is in psychoanalytic psychotherapy, the therapist is listening to the content of a story and trying to make sense and put perspective and meaning on the story. In experiential methods, Content matters. People like to talk and we want to listen, but you're really looking and tracking the moment to moment being of the person who you are with and therefore not only listening, but looking at the body language, looking for emotion, because what we're trying to really go to go after is to help somebody get in touch with their deepest sense of self, their deepest authentic feelings and beliefs and experiences and definitions of who they are and how they are in this world so that they feel connected to themselves. And when you're connected to yourself, you are, it's easier to connect with others in this kind of authentic way. So even as I hear myself saying that, it sounds kind of obtuse and jargony, but the, the main difference is 
you're in a moment in the in the here and now of a moment as much as possible with experiential therapy and so what that would basically look like just to kind of paint a picture for for people listening is let's say someone is sharing a story and all of a sudden so i'm not only using my ears i'm really I'm, I'm with them, I'm noticing them, and let's say their tears, I see their, their eyes moisten, and I see that there's a sense of emotion in their, in their eyes. If I was a psychoanalyst, I might or might not say something about that or point it out. As an experiential therapist, that's a moment that I want to deepen, and so without you know, being careful not to create shame or to have someone feel self-conscious, I might say, I'm so interested in everything you're saying, and I'm noticing that right now your eyes are welling up with tears. Would it be okay if we just really slowed down and honored what's happening right now? And I might even say, if you tune into the feeling in your eyes, what would your tears say? Or what, you know, what's the experience coming up now? And then we're really now going vertical down into the person's deeper self. Then we're off to the races, as they say. And that's where change really occurs at the level of emotion and even the level of the body, which is where emotions are born and where they reside and live, even though they feel like they're happening in your head a lot of the time. They're really physical experiences. Yes, it's a beautiful example. And, and that's what I find so fascinating because I think, and I'll speak for myself, mm-hmm. that if I, I could be going to a psychoanalyst five days a week and talking and talking, and it is great to be heard and it's great to think through things. And I'm good at that. It's where I used to have a really hard time is getting into what my body was feeling. I was very disconnected between my thoughts and my body experience. And that disconnect was a real missing link for me in a healing process. So I think when I started learning experiential practices and we learn them experientially too, like I I felt how different that is. The shifts that you feel are so tangible. Yeah. And I, I shared your same early exp- earlier experience too with um, being in more intellectual therapies, more insight-oriented therapies. And in fact, to become a psychoanalyst, I lied on a couch three times a week for three years. And um, this is such a different feeling when somebody helps you because you really do need help. There's something just about the human brain in virtually, you know, all of us that we tend to live in our heads it's just it's sort of a natural floating upwards and we need a certain environment i think that uh, with a with a person that's quote a safe other somebody who we know we can begin to be just in, in manageable increments a little bit vulnerable and know that it's you know test the waters of safety and starting to f- get in touch with emotion and uh, our bodies. And once you do, it is a transformational experience. That's what's healing. And, um, and then, you know, you can be very strategic in how you get, you know, really radical change on a deep level to ameliorate symptoms and suffering and, and distress of all kinds. So how does ADP do that? Mm. <laughs> just a little yeah, light question no like that. <laughs> well, let me say, just to learn ADP, it takes a long time. So there's um, yeah. there's a, a lot to to answer that question. But you're saying, how does ADP, if I understand you correctly, create transformation? Well, I'm thinking about the concept that you talk about quite a bit. I know the change triangle, I mm-hmm. guess, you know, that may be a piece of ADP. Mm-hmm. I was thinking maybe you could talk a little bit about that. Okay, great. Yes, that's that. Thank you. That's helpful. Yeah, this, this concept of the change triangle is a, what am I going to call it? It's, it's really, it's a map. It's a, it's a triangle that has its roots and had its roots 
in academia before that. It was um, for people that studied something called the intensive short-term dynamic psychotherapies. Back in the 70s, David Mallon diagrammed in his textbook on short-term dynamic psychotherapy a triangle. And the triangle really is diagramming the relationship between core emotions, which are these inborn, pre-wired survival mechanisms that all humans have across gender, race, culture, every single one of us on earth is, is born with these pre-wired same seven core emotions. And so the bottom of the triangle is where in this diagram, which I wish we could see each other and show this um, to your audience. Um, but if you picture a triangle with core emotions at the bottom and on the two top corners, we have another type of emotion, which are called inhibitory emotions. And these are not, they're different than core emotions in that they're more designed to help us fit into groups and to socialize us. And what they do is they serve to inhibit the core emotions when they are displeasing to the people around us. And the inhibitory emotions, I think you'll recognize, as will your listeners, are guilt, shame, and anxiety. Um, those lovely mm -hmm. people. Yes. And guilt and shame and anxiety don't feel good. And neither do core emotions when we have them in amounts that are overwhelming or too much or we're too alone with them. So then the other corner of the triangle has, is about defenses. And we've all probably heard about defenses or having someone telling us we're being defensive or um, even understand the way that we defend against feeling. But really, defenses are not anything to be judged. They are simply, I'm defining them as anything that we do to avoid feeling bad. So they're actually quite good. They help us, they're, they're designed to help us and our mind creates defenses in a myriad of ways, some helpful and some ultimately hurtful, but the intent is always to be helpful. It's to spare us pain and discomfort. Mm -hmm. So when I saw this uh, model being taught, when I went to this conference 12 years ago, this emotion conference that I mentioned a while ago, and they projected on this huge screen, this triangle, I instantly felt more organized in my head. And um, what happened is, you know, what I can draw is kind of from my own personal experience before I saw this triangle and after I saw this triangle. And again, I should say this is just a piece of ADP theory, but it's something that when I learned it, I said to myself that this is something I, sh I wish I had learned in high school. It's something that I think every human being on this planet would benefit from knowing. And the reason why is, you know, if you take when you're upset, most of us just feel upset. We don't, you know, something happens. We feel something badly in our head or in our bodies, uh, or we feel like doing something badly we, 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 that we know isn't good for us. We have an impulse maybe to lash out at somebody or an impulse to hide. And most of us kind of grab its at the skills that we have to feel better. Those are the defenses. So those range, for me, it would be kind of talking myself down, maybe asking myself what happened. Those are very good things to do, to, to have like a kind of a positive self-talk and to try to figure out why we're feeling bad, badly about ourselves or just badly physically. But the other thing people do when they feel badly to help themselves is to grab a drink or to grab a drug or to shut down or to blame somebody else, or even more severe, you know, these symptoms like self-harm, like cutting oneself, or symptoms like hallucinating or dissociating. These are all defenses in the way that I'm defining it as something that tries to take us away from emotional pain. So before I learned the triangle, again, and most of us sort of feel badly and we, we don't really have a prescription for what to do. When you learn the, tri the change triangle, all of a sudden, things begin to make sense because the change triangle asks us to figure out, it teaches us what are our core emotions and how do we recognize them. Mm 
It teaches us what are our inhibitory emotions and how do we recognize them and what are the defenses we're using. And once you figure that out, each of the corners of the triangle, we then have a very specific call to action. We know what to do next to get us to a place of feeling better. And again, just what feeling better means to me and to most people is I feel calmer, I feel more connected to myself, I feel more authentic, I feel more vital, I just feel more me. I don't feel hijacked by a feeling that feels awful. Yeah. Does that make sense? Congruent, grounded. Yes. All that. Yeah. Does that make sense? It's a a lot of words I just threw out at at you, but... um, yeah, I yeah, think it okay. does make sense. And um, I think the topic of the change triangle is fascinating. Mm-hmm. It sounds like it really changed things for you to to hear about that and learn about it. Yes. And, and then, then from that moment on, I, I began studying AEDP, uh, of which the triangle is, um, is a, you know, a sort of a primary, one of their many guides, but it's, it's a primary guide. I should mention that it was, um, I said it began, the change triangle was called the triangle of conflict, just a little history in the 1970s. Then Diana Fosha, who was the developer of AEDP, changed the name from the Triangle of Conflict to the Triangle of Experience. These are for the academics out there listening. And then I nicknamed it the Change Triangle for the public because uh, when I knew that I was going to write a book about this and I wanted it to go not to therapists, although I assume therapists will read the book, uh, this is really for everybody who's interested in, in, in wellness and personal growth and self-actualization and mental health and feeling better and all those words, those positive words. Yeah. Well, you know, we both talked about this last time when we, when our interview wasn't recorded, but that you consulted on the TV show Mad Men. And that is how I became aware of you when I saw something you had written about that. And I, I was like, wow, you know, Don Draper is such a classic example of someone who is not in touch with his emotions and feels so much pain and so much distress in his relationships. And it fascinated me to learn that you had been a part of, you know, advising on mental health on that show. And I wanted to get to talk to you then because I'm a fan of the show. And I just think that the portrayals are so complex of all the characters. Mm-hmm. So when you think about someone like Don Draper, would you feel like you could kind of use him as an example or someone like that as an example with the change triangle? Sure. Sure. Understand? Yeah, I think that's a great idea. I think I can do that. And, and we can use other, you know, try to even do other examples um, because I do think it, it helps tremendously. And I, I guess I just want to say for people listening, if it's confusing, that um, this book that will hopefully come out in, in mid-2017, uh, I'm not even saying this necessarily to plug it, but I just, I, just to your point, it's going to be filled with um, not like telling you about this, but showing through verbatim stories, clinical tales of how you work this triangle again and again. There's about seven or eight stories of I say this, then the person says that, and so that, and to make it translatable so that you can uh, work it yourself, because it's really, I think people can definitely make use of this triangle by themselves and when you get stuck uh, bringing it to a, a therapist so yes absolutely. we need examples because it's otherwise it's it's it just brings it closer to home um yes so don draper oh poor don draper um tortured don draper tortured don draper so as we know he the origin you know so we we start our life we're born at the bottom of the triangle which means we're born kind of fresh with our core emotions ready to be used and shared and you think I should name the core emotions now Laura That would be great. Uh, yeah. yeah. So and again for I'm a scientist at heart and uh, and someone who likes to be grounded in in research and so there's some dispute over what the core emotions are and how you define them, but I'm really defining them in terms of their usefulness in helping people. So that I, I will talk about seven core emotions. I don't think people disagree on, on any of these. And those would be sadness, 
anger, fear, and disgust on the quote negative side, even though I think all core emotions are terrific, um, but they these ones hurt. People struggle with these a little bit more, or they think they do. Actually, I could say something about that. And on the positive side, joy, excitement, and sexual excitement. So those are the seven. Okay. And what makes a core emotion core is that something happens in the environment and these emotions are, are designed so we quickly respond to them. Um, so we basically, to simplify it, things that we feel bad, we want to get away from or fight against, and things that feel good, we want to move towards on a very visceral, primitive level. So those are the core emotions. And clinically and in life, what also differentiates them from the inhibitory emotions is that when we have core emotions, what is helpful and healing and healthy is not to avoid them. It's to lean into them and to touch them, to honor them, and to experience them, which means to feel them. And I teach people how to feel their feelings in a very specific way so that they actually feel, when you do this, you feel better at the end of it and not worse. So, so we're born. So I'm thinking of Don Draper, who was born with his core emotions and ready to love and ready to engage in the world. And then for all of us on this earth, stuff starts to happen, life. And there's other people that were born into a family. And hopefully the people are kind and treat us nicely and they have empathy. And even when that happens, it's not perfect. And I'll stick with Don for a while, but then we, because he's an extreme case, but then we can talk about um, kind of the average one of us. So Don was born into this very difficult environment where he lost his, his mother. He had basically neglect of love and care and security and safety, and he was abused. And as a result, and he was very, very much alone. And as a result, he learned that his feelings, his core feelings, like being frightened if, something, if somebody hurt him, of being angry if somebody hurt him, because anger comes up no matter how young we are. If we are in distress, we get angry. Uh, sadness and despair over, over his pain. All these things push up for expression. And he knows biologically, this is not conscious, that they're not safe to have. So what happens is anxiety starts to come up. And the anxiety is a signal that says it's not safe to feel. It's not safe to get angry because somebody might hit us. It's not safe to feel sad because somebody might shame us and say, you know, boys don't cry or man up or you're such a sissy or something like that. So you have these large amounts of core emotions being triggered by the environment and then these large amounts of anxiety and probably shame because when we're not tended to, instead of being angry and thinking the people around us are bad, like our parents or our caregivers, children take this on their own and they feel there's something wrong with them. It's just a, a biological process that seems to happen to all of us. So now you have a little kid that is filled with all these emotions, these core emotions, and filled with all these inhibitory emotions. And can you imagine how awful that feels internally? And thus, defenses are born. So his mind, based on his genetics and his disposition, now start to figure out ways to not go crazy, to not lose his mind, to not die, basically. And... You start to block emotions more effectively with dissociation. Um, maybe you start to drink. And I, I don't know how old Don was when he started drinking, but we know as an adult, he defended against his feelings by uh, drinking and ultimately alcoholism. He defended against his feelings by having multiple affairs, not getting too involved, right? Intimacy is danger for somebody that wasn't treated well as a child. Mm. And so when we see in, from the triangle perspective, he started at the bottom of the triangle and he traveled up and to the right through inhibitory motions and then over into the left into defensive living, which is where we meet him when the series begins. Not to mention the PTSD from being in, uh, in a war 
and seeing combat and seeing his best friend die right next to him. So there's trauma among trauma, there's childhood trauma, and there's trauma from other things happening that happened in his life. So that if he showed up in my office, I would, we would be beginning in a defensive state. And what I would slowly be trying to help him to do is to feel safe enough to look at his defenses, begin to get to, to make them conscious that he was doing this. So for example, if he was cheating on his wife to help to make it safe for him that there was no judgment that he could begin to ask himself, well, what might he be feeling right at the moment before he thinks about picking up a woman at a bar? To try to help him get down into his body and in touch with what's going on from a physical sensation point of view and from, a, uh, from an emotion point of view, helping him name the emotions literally saying, okay, you know, you're, you're about to go to a bar. If we just pause right there and really slow down, can we name which of these emotions that you might be feeling? Include, and, and really adding other states of loneliness and despair. Um, so it goes something like that. And I guess yeah. I, I just should mention one thing that if, in fact, Don Draper showed up in my room Probably because he was so traumatized, even before that happened, we'd be setting the stage for that kind of work with helping him just learn how to be in the moment and ground, like like, uh, people from the very first session learn how to breathe to regulate anxiety in a certain way. They, I teach them just about the simple thing. It sounds ridiculous, but just feeling your feet on the floor. Um, and trying to come out of your head for a moment, just feel the floor underneath you and breathe is a practice that we can do over a lifetime, but it sets the stage for helping someone realize that when they're feeling something intolerable, they can do something right away to help calm that feeling. And breathing is probably the one, one of the most underutilized self-regulatory things we can do on our own to calm the body because very scientifically you take a deep breath into your stomach and you hold it and you release it slowly. It stimulates the major nerve in the body called the vagus nerve, which is connected to the heart and actively slows the heart rate. So these things are just not kind of new agey weird stuff. It's actually uh, medical and scientifically based, but uh-huh. people don't really know that. You yeah. Know? I'm so yeah. glad you brought that up. Yeah. I love talking. Yeah about that yeah uh, yeah yeah so and and then, so just to finish it over time let's say I saw him for um, let's say someone like Don Draper who is about 40 years old let's say it was a five-year treatment a lot of uh, people would need less but I'm just going with the extreme by the end of the treatment he would be able to identify when he was anxious identify the feelings underneath the anxiety and know which feelings he needed to kind of feel and let himself, you know, the, the, the ultimate goal is at the end of it is to be able to not be frightened of any of the core feelings and to know how to experience them fully and how to use the information that they're designed by evolution to provide to change the external environment if that's possible or to soothe and calm yourself so that you can figure out how to help yourself. So it's, it's very common sense also and practical, which I, I like. Yeah, that's a really nice description of how it looks and how, you know, what to expect at the end. And I have a question because um, it is called accelerated experiential dynamic mm-hmm. psychotherapy. I was wondering if, you know, I thought, I wondered, accelerated, like how accelerated? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yes, it's a great question. So, again, the, you know, the brain we now know is plastic, which means that it changes. But, and sometimes it changes very fast. So, if you think about when you have a traumatic event, in one second, your brain changes, right? We all know that feeling where we are changed forever. And by that token, you can have one positive transformational moment that you are forever changed by. And often the sessions look like that that something will happen and it's just, it's a radical transformation. But if somebody has lots of trauma and lots of trust issues, it takes time because you're really rewiring a lot of different beliefs. And what happens is anxiety, shame, and guilt become 
bound, like if you think of kind of two um, pipe cleaners, I use pipe cleaners in my practice to kind of illustrate how the brain works. And you can have sadness as a core emotion, which I want to help somebody be able to feel linked to shame, which doesn't feel good. And so every time the person starts to feel sad, they start to feel shame. It takes some time. And if you have this over and over again in different aspects of their brain and mind, it takes time to kind of separate these, uh, these ways of being out so that the person feels safe to, to feel. So to answer your question, accelerated, I guess, you know, from a psychoanalytic perspective, therapy could go on for a lifetime. I think Woody Allen jokes about that. Mm-hmm. It's definitely um, not the goal here. So I would say... And the people that come see me usually have quite a bit of childhood trauma. So when they're very young, like in, tw- in your 20s, the brain changes fast. So a couple of years is like a full treatment and they do well and then the rest of their life, they're really quite good to go. And they know how to, they may come in for a tune-up every now and then if something difficult happens in life. But um, two years for a total therapy is pretty accelerated. I mean, there are some people that come in for six months and they do well. And then there are other people that I've been treating for six or seven years that have really needed that full time. And um, seven years seems to be a marker for sometimes it takes that, particularly people who were so shut down that they really have been living in a state of shame for their entire life. And to undo that and to feel safe to be their full selves and their big selves take some time yeah well that to me that sounds right that Mm -hmm. sounds right because when you're working with childhood trauma you're talking about defenses that have developed almost as a part of the person's identity Mm -hmm. you know and throughout their life and it's it's informed how they see the world it's not just something happened in adulthood when their development is you know mostly formed and and then they have oh wow this has changed things for me so I work with childhood trauma too that's my that's my favorite situation to help people with and so when I when I hear accelerated you know I wondered is this supposed to be like a six-month thing or something and I I get what you're saying that it could be short like that but Mm -hmm. when the experiences are pretty deeply wrapped together mm-hmm. you know it takes some time to disentangle and you know so that I'd be surprised if it was like oh yeah two sessions and you know that just sounds impossible to right me. like focus focus right yeah exactly. yeah exactly there are some you know it's interesting hypnosis is uh I don't know if you've ever interviewed people who have done hypnosis but that's sort of an interesting thing where you know people see, you know, the maximum of three sessions and you're really, you're working the brain in the same way. It's this idea of how do you uncouple neural networks and then put them back in other ways that are more adaptive. And the nice thing, you know, ADP also is based in science and the science shows that if you get out of, if you get rid of inhibitions, if you bypass defenses, that that the body knows what to do to heal. So it's not like I'm deciding how to rewire these networks. It's basically like if you if you loosen the, the hold, uh, and I'll go back to um, shame being bound with, um, with a core emotion like sadness, if you loosen it enough, it will just integrate, the brain just will sort of reorganize in a way that's adaptive and, and that the person becomes calmer and it feels better. The body just knows what to do if you get rid of, if you kind of move over obstacles and get out of the way and just create a safe environment so somebody's is free to just let the process naturally unfold. And what I re- mean by naturally unfold, because that seems vague, is literally if somebody has a core emotion, again, of sadness, let's say they're mourning something from the past, I literally will, they'll, they'll be tuning into the physical feeling of the sadness. It's, it's focused attention. So for me, for example, I feel sadness in my chest. It's like a heaviness. And when I feel sad and I know that I need to cry, I'll kind of drop the storyline of what I'm sad about. And I'll even drop kind of the emotion of sadness. And I will just focus on the heaviness in my chest with a kind of loving, compassionate, non-judgmental stance 
and I'll just follow it. Because when you focus on a physical sensation, it actually stimulates the brain to start moving. And if you stay with the physical sensation, it will know what to do. And if you're with a core emotion, there'll be kind of a wave. They have these wave-like ways of being. The emotion will crescendo. Then if it's with sadness, you may start to cry. And then the crying will stop if you don't thwart it. And you'll feel relief and better and it will be past. So again, you're not forcing anything. It's a really, it's an allowing, it's a fostering, it's a getting out of the way and letting yourself, letting your body do what it naturally does to heal, just like a cut. You don't have to make it, you don't have to hold it together. It just will, it'll heal. Oh, wow. Thank you for that example. And, you know, I think so much of the pain that we experience is when we are struggling against that feeling. We don't want to feel it. We don't want to allow it. And so that's what prolongs it instead of we're so afraid of how bad it's going to feel. But if we allow it, we have the feeling and it passes. Kind of that brings me back to like, so I've been sharing like what happens in therapy and I really want your listeners to know that the change triangle and the information that I am um, feel so passionate about sharing is we can do a lot on our own because what the information about the change triangle does is it when you learn about the actual phenomena of emotions, when you learn what they are, when you learn, when someone says, this is what it's supposed to feel like, this is what it does, this is how it works in the body, this is why it's happening, that becomes already, you've demystified it, it's less scary. So it's like most people can tolerate the physical feeling of a feeling if they, if they weren't frightened. Mm-hmm. You know, so as long as you, even just telling someone it's okay to feel this way, is a huge relief. This is normal. It's not going to get any worse or you're not alone. You know, if you know, you can go to someone and have them just hug you while you have a good cry that, or even that they're supposed to feel like a wave. And if you ride this wave, it will subside and you'll land safely. So that's the first thing that the triangle teaches is what are each of these things? And let's begin to see what we can put let's see if we can begin to put language on what's happening in a given moment throughout the day for you. And then the triangle sort of then teaches you some skills for how can I get from you know, this corner back down to core emotion? And then what do I do when I'm down here and blah, 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 what happens next? What happens next? And, and how to work it. And it's a practice. It's not like a perfect, it's a practice over a lifetime. There are still times when I'm like, well, what am I feeling? It's like, some weird mix and I'm kind of playing with it and, and uh, in all sorts of different ways. And then, you know, it takes a while and then I'm like, okay, that's what it was. And the reason I know it is because when I focus on it and do something with it, I feel better. So the measure of if something, if something is working is just to trust yourself. If you feel better, it's good. And if you feel worse, it's uh, try something else. Right. And feel better doesn't mean you're numb. It means right. the feeling is past. It's, Yes, you should feel more. Yes. In fact, there's very markers of feeling better. I write about this in in the book, and it's all on my website, that when you fully experience a core feeling, what's on the other side is this state that uh, people call lots of different things. I'm referring to it as this open-hearted state where, and, and the way you can remember or find it is it's characterized by all these words that begin with the letter C. And, and Laura, you can tell me if you, if you relate to this, of these C words that actually tell you that you're not numb, but you're in a good place. So you feel calm physically and mentally. Your head is not, you know, you're not ruminating, that there's a kind of an overall calmness. There's a clarity in your thoughts. There's a connection to yourself and to the world whether it's a spiritual connection or a connection to others, that connection is a big part of feeling well. One is able to be curious from this open-hearted state. One is able to often be creative from this open-hearted state. One feels a bit more confident in themselves. I think I've covered most of them. And, but all those 
are markers that you, um, you know, people tend, this is, these are the states that people actually describe in session when they have felt something that has been blocked previously and they feel so much better and then they stay with it. You know, again, I'll have someone after they finish having an emotion to notice, okay, what's, what do you feel now inside your body? What's in the wake of this feeling? And then they begin to spontaneously describe, geez, I, I feel calm. I feel clear. I feel confident. I feel strong and grounded and a coherent, this is again jargony, this, this sense of a coherent narrative, meaning you can tell the story of your life in a way that these bad things, these hurtful things happened to me, but now they are over. They are no longer haunting me. Yeah, that's those descriptions, those markers sound totally right on to me. And so I think, I do think it's really important for people, you know, it's like, oh, something terrible happened, but I went and I just got so drunk, I couldn't feel it anymore. So I feel a lot better now. It's like, <laughs> that's not feeling better, you know, and it might for the moment, but yeah. it's not sustainable because it will it comes back, right? You become reliant on it. The feelings, the feeling, it's like physics. It's like a piston. The feelings know they need to push, they need to come up. Otherwise, they stay in the body and they create literal stress on the body. That's why so many people have heart disease and high blood pressure. And there's even theories that autoimmune diseases are, are stress-related. So they exert literal pressure on the body. It's not healthy. And so we all need to learn to feel our feelings. And, um, you know, it sounds cheesy as I say it. And we live in a culture that has said just the opposite, this whole kind of Puritan ethic of which the country was founded, pick yourself up by your bootstraps. And that's got a place. But if we don't come back and tend to feelings, people get depressed and they develop symptoms. And there's just no way around it. People also get aggressive. And I have to say, you know, from a, something I think a lot about is men. I'm, I write a lot for men because I feel for them there's a fundamental conflict, um, not only in the culture that says that men, it's not okay for men to feel tender feelings. And I, and I help a lot of men feel their tender feelings because men have sadness and fear and well, we've anger and disgust, right? Sadness and fear and anxiety and depression, like kind of these softer, quote, weaker emotions. But they, um, all people have all the emotions. And, you know, in men, not only are there astronomical rates of suicide for young men in, in this country, uh, it all has to, and symptoms and alcoholism, it all has to do with that they are not allowed to feel those tender feelings without being labeled as weak. Add to that, that men who go off into war, and again, I, I don't want to say that, you know, it's exclusively men, because I know that women join the military and whatnot, but I'm just thinking, if you're in touch with your fear, it's very hard to go off into war and to be so yeah, brave. You have to distance yourself from it to survive that. Right. So it's a, it's a conflict, really, for our society and culture to figure that out. And uh, ideally, we would live in a peaceful world and we wouldn't fight. But well, and then what happens when they come back and we tell them, now you're supposed to feel your feelings? How do they turn it back on? You know, and you have PTSD. Right. Symptoms. That's what's in the middle, right. Um, you, yeah. 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 I wanted to add to everything you said about the stress and the physical illness that can relate to that. And um, when you are flooded with the stress hormones caused by trauma, you know, that can, that can have an adverse effect on your health. So yes, it absolutely does have an adverse effect. Yes. I mean, there's tons of science to prove they're corticosteroids and they're the stress hormones and they're, they're hurtful. They're dangerous. Yeah. So when people think it's quote unquote touchy feely to feel your emotions, no, it's actually preventive well, you know, preventive health, mm -hmm. preventative. Yes, it's preventive health, and it's absolutely necessary for wellness. And I would also argue, I, mean, I say this to my, my, my patients a lot when they're like, you know, but feeling feelings is weak. And I'm like, well, does this seem like, it seems to me like you have to be pretty strong to actually feel a feeling. They're, they can be painful and scary. Actually, avoiding feelings feels, if you have to judge one, and I don't really like to because there's a reason people avoid their feelings, that there's not, there hasn't been a safe place to feel them. But 
I think if one is weaker, kind of avoidance is sort of the, the weaker uh, one in my, in my book, that to really deal and cope head on takes a lot of courage, serious courage. Yeah. yeah, strength and courage to feel painful emotions. Mm-hmm. Question right. for the betterment not only of yourself but for your relationships. Because when we live in defenses and we avoid and we can't connect and we can't really hear other people, I mean, relationships suffer tremendously. So I also love working with couples and helping them, teaching people what it's like to connect with emotions, not only thoughts, which are so important, and I, I love my thoughts, but I also <laughs> could not, um, you know, when, when my husband and I are in a skirmish and we're going round and round and every couple has their same kind of uh, dance that they do when it's like, oh my God, we've been here so many times, it's the same fight over and over again. It means that there's some stuck feelings, some stuck younger parts, something from our childhood or young adulthood that is dovetailing and, and just creating the stalemate. And the only way to loosen it is to go deeper and to say, you know, what is this bringing up for you? What emotions is it evoking? And then really try to to be with those and and have each person hear it and create empathy. And then all of a sudden, it's like magic. Everything gets better. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Hillary, this has been a lovely conversation. And I know that people who are listening may be really interested in learning more about the change triangle and just everything you're talking about with ADP and and your work. So what's the best way for people to get connected with you? Oh, thank you for asking, Laura. Well, I I have a, a website that is, it's my name, Hillary Jacobs Hendel. Dot com and Hillary is with one L H I L A R Y J A C O B like boy S like Sam Hendel is H E N like Nancy D like David E L like lollipop dot com and that has my articles I wrote an article for the New York Times that a lot of people really like that's actually how I was asked to write this book. And, uh, but I have a, a blog that I write and I send out um, a blog post once a month because I don't like inundating people with emails because I don't like to be inundated with emails. <laughs> and um, best way to keep in touch, and, and eventually uh, the book is going to come out in mid-2017, is to sign up for my email list. You'll get my blog posts once a month. And, and then as the book gets closer, you'll, I'll sort of update people and um, kind of with as my excitement grows because I'm so excited uh, to be able to send like the cover and, and the title which I think will be the change triangle but I don't know yet. Um, Random House is uh, moving slower than I am. Mm-hmm. And I'm also offering you know as, as more incentive I really want people to sign up who have interested in really you would sign up if you're interested in emotions if you're interested in mental health and wellness and new ideas and also, if you sign up, I'm going to kind of have a giveaway once the book is launched. And um, so you'll be entered into the pool of names and uh, we'll pick a certain number of names which we who will send free signed books to. Um, oh, awesome. So that's a little more incentive to sign up. But also on my website is a full description of the Change Triangle. I also have some videos that I put up, little tiny snippets from uh, um, talks that I give because I speak on the change triangle. And um, I just welcome people to come and check it out. I also have a Facebook page, Hillary Jacobs Hendel, author, blogger. And that's another way to get the posts. And, um, and I also like people to get in touch and email me and ask questions. And if you have a special request for a, a blog post that you want me to write about, uh, if I think I'm competent to do it, I would love to do that. So I really just like to connect with, with, uh, with my readers. Wonderful. And I will be sure to put into the show notes your website address and your Facebook link too, so that people can, you know, easily click on that right from the show notes, especially if they're driving right now and they want to come back and find that. So thank you. That sounds terrific. Yeah, thank you. I can't wait till your book comes out. I think it's going to be wonderful. I know I'll be lining up to get it. Oh, that's so sweet of you. Thank you. I'm really excited. Really excited. So thank you so much. It's been so great to to have the opportunity to share. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for being on Therapy Chat. It's been a pleasure. Thanks. Bye, Laura. 
I hope you enjoyed my interview with Hillary Jacobs Hendel. I thought it was fascinating when she spoke about core emotions and the change triangle. She is a fascinating person, and I'm so grateful that she agreed to come back to Therapy Chat today. Please remember to visit iTunes and leave a rating and review and subscribe so you can receive all the latest episodes of Therapy Chat as soon as they're released. You can also find all episodes of Therapy Chat on therapychatpodcast.com. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to the Therapy Chat Podcast with Laura Reagan, LCSWC. For more information, visit Laura's website at www.lauraregan.lcswc.com 